American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Throw it all away. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Again. Girls, what's my weakness? Man. American timelines. Okay, then. <laughs> chilling. Chilling. You like my version? Why did you say American timelines? Because that's my weakness. That's your weakness? Yeah. Uh, where's my mouse? Here it is. I, I fucking found it. Welcome to another episode of American, American timelines. timelines. I'm Amy, and that's Joe. And this is episode 182. Ooh. We've been doing this for some time. We've been doing this for a hot minute. We've been doing it for a long time, and everybody wants us to stop, but guess what? Can't stop, won't stop. <laughs> and we're in May and June of 1955 right now, and we're going to jump right the fuck in, right? We yeah. don't have anything to say, we do we? Any, we don't care. We don't Let's have any updates, it. any life updates to give or anything. Let's move it on, move it on. Ain't nothing happening. Mm-mm. So we're going to jump right into the timeline, 1955. We last left off. It was It was... Stupid April of 1955, but now it's May of 1955. And did you know that on May 1st uh, of 1955, showgirl Linda Lawson was crowned Miss Q in the atomic pageant after the Operation Q test was repeatedly delayed by high winds? What is the op- What are you talking about? They had a Miss Atomic pageant uh, out in uh, out where they did all the testing. Oh. Uh, the, the nuclear testing. Oh, jeez. Um, of course they did. And they call the... They had like a Miss Marlboro pageant, too, probably. I mean, they had... <laughs> a lot of pageants. Yeah. This was just showgirls that were in these pageants. Um, so they... More, I think. In 1955, May of 1955, they were working on Operation Q test, C-U-E, and they called... So they called her Miss Q because the, the tests had to be canceled a bunch of times because of wind, I guess. Um the pageants were inspired by the cultural phenomena, uh, and Las Vegas decided to combine two of its major attractions, nuclear bombs and showgirls, into a beauty contest. There were only four showgirl-turned-beauty queens, and there was no single Miss Atomic Bomb beauty pageant, and, uh, and most of the queens were simply just showgirls chosen for their radiant looks. The queens came out in an only loosely related manner, atomic-themed, usually of the mushroom cloud variety in their costumes. One of them had a... Mushroom stamp. Yeah, not, not a mushroom <laughs> stamp. Uh, but in 1955, uh, Linda Lawson was crowned Miss Q on May 1st of 1955, and the title was to illustrate all the misfiring of the Operation Q-bomb. Her crown was a mushroom cloud. She had a mushroom cloud crown, so... There you go. That was a thing that happened. She might have had a mushroom stamp. Mushroom stamp. She might have got one later, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And then May 2nd, Pulitzer, the Pulitzer Prize that year was awarded to uh, Tennessee Williams. Yeah, he's a pretty good playwright. You know what he got got it for in um, 1955? Probably. 55? <clears throat> uh, probably the, 
the night of the iguana or something. Oh gosh. Like oh, you couldn't be more wrong. Oh, oh my God. cat on a hot tin roof. Yes, cat on a hot tin roof. Or is it roof? The roof. roof. The roof. roof. The roof is Not on the fire. Roof. The roof. <laughs> That's what my my grandmother said, roof, I think. Anyway, set in a plantation home in the Mississippi Delta of Big Daddy Pollock, a wealthy cotton tycoon, the play examines the relationships among members of Big Daddy's family, primarily between his son Brick and Maggie the Cat, Brick's wife. Did you ever read that? Um, yes. You yes, did? of course, yes. It features motifs. I think I probably did a scene from it here once or twice, but I never was in it. I always kind of wanted to be. Features motifs such as social mores, greed, superficiality, decay, sexual desire, repression, and death. Dialogue throughout is often written using non-standard spelling intended to represent accents of the southern United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think I, I vaguely remember that one. And then on May 12th, we have a first in African-American history. Chicago Cub Sam Toothpick Jones is the first African-American to pitch a no-hitter. Sam Jones looks around that infield. Somebody on every base. All set again. Here we go. Strike two. Thomas McMichael. Jones needs one more strike for you know what. Watch it now. Jones against Thomas. The pitch. Strike three. Strike three. It's a no-hitter for Jones. Pandemonium out of the field. The field Jones is being pounded by well-wishers, players, and fans alike. Four to nothing over the Pittsburgh Pirates at Wrigley Field. Good. He played in the Negro Leagues before the American League, and he played for a team called the Cleveland Buckeyes uh, in the Negro Leagues, which I didn't know that was a team. Oh. Uh, and his name was Toothpick because he always had a toothpick hanging out of his mouth. Some people used to do that. Have a toothpick hanging out of their mouth? Yeah. It's always like a trope. You're yeah. Like a gangster's always. A like a gangster. Yeah, yeah, see? Mm-hmm. Yeah. On... Um, May 25th, 1955, we're getting right through these. Uh, the Golden Buddha, officially titled Frafuta Mahaswana Petamakan. I'm sure I said Flawless. that exactly right. Yeah. It's a gold Maravijaya attitude seated Buddha Rupa statue, which is basically a Buddha statue, mm-hmm. with a weight of five and a half tons. And it's located in the temple of Wat Traimit, Bangkok, Thailand. At one point in its history, the statue was covered with a layer of stucco and colored glass to conceal its true value so nobody would know it's gold. And it remained in this condition for like 200 years, ending up uh, what was then a pagoda of minor significance. During relocation of the statue in 1955, the plaster was chipped off and the gold was revealed in May of 1955. Oh, wow. The origins of the statue are uncertain. Uh, it is made in the Sukhothai dynasty style of the 13th, 14th centuries, though it could have been made after that time. So it could be as old as like being made in 1403. Um, and they said, like I said, somebody covered in plaster to hide it. Uh, is, uh, yeah, they, they think that happened at least before the 1700s, before 1767. Uh, okay. And Oh, it, it, they think it happened before the destruction of the Ayataya kingdom of Burmese invaders in 1767. Like these invaders were destroying everything and in the rubble, they hid it because they didn't want them to find the big gold thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so it laid in rubble forever, for a long time. Um, in 1801, King Buddha of Siam, after painful. establishing Bangkok as a new capital city of the kingdom, after commissioning the construction of many temples in Bangkok, he ordered that various Buddha images should be brought to Bangkok from the, all the ruined temples around the country. So this came with all these Buddhas that he... They, they just said, bring them all in one place, mm-hmm. even though they're just like rubble and everything. Mm-hmm. And so it was installed as the principal Buddha image in the main temple building at this place in Bangkok. Uh, and nobody, still, nobody knew. That was in 1801. So still, until 1955, nobody knew. Yeah, it was gold. Yeah, that it was gold. Uh, and then in 1954, they built a new temple building just for the statue and here on may 25th 1955 it was moved there when they tried to lift the statue from its pedestal the ropes broke the statue fell hitting the ground super hard causing some of the plaster coating to chip off revealing the gold surface underneath and work was immediately stopped so they could evaluate it and they meticulously removed all the plaster and you can see photos of that process in the temple if you go to visit it now yeah and they also kept plaster pieces on display uh and when it was all removed, they discovered the gold statue consisted of nine parts that fit together. And there was actually a key encased in the plaster mm-hmm. so they could use it to disassemble the statue for easier transportation. So oh, they wow. had no idea that either. Uh, yeah, so the golden statue was discovered very close to the commemoration of the 25th Buddhist era Uh so the Thai news media was full of reports and many Buddhists regarded the occurrence as miraculous. They thought because it's okay. on this, yeah. And so it's about almost 10 feet tall, weighs five and a half tons. Oh, my goodness. It's big then. Big, huge, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> it is estimated to be worth $250 million. Holy shit. That's a pretty penny. That's a lot of money for a golden Buddha. But that's kind of a cool story how they found it. They might yeah. never found it. Right. Um, and uh, in sad... Uh, weather news on May 25th, 1955, uh, a series of 19 twisters destroyed parts of Kansas and Oklahoma. Did you see that one that just happened in, I think it was Kansas? There's some video online somebody posted. Yeah, I did see that, that TikTok I saw. And it was like insane. It was just lifting the roofs off of those houses and stuff. Yeah, that's what they do. Holy shit. That's what these twisters do, man. That's the thing now with video everywhere. Instant video. You can take anything <laughs> and upload it to the world. Um, but back in 1955, things were way different. You didn't have TikTok to post your videos of tornadoes. You didn't have videos in your hands, video recorders. Right. But back then, according to weather.gov, <coughs> the, f- the first significant t- tornado of this day, May 25th, 1955, Rated F4, developed northwest of Wellington, Texas, and moved into western Oklahoma, killing two people southwest of Cheyenne, Oklahoma. Over the next few hours, nearly 20 tornadoes were reported in Oklahoma near the following towns. Mayfield, Oklahoma, whose post office opened on December 23, 1902. Its first postmaster was Alfred S. Mayfield. That's why they named it Mayfield. That's the only thing I find about that town. It's a tiny, tiny place. You're gonna, are you going to say that much about each of these towns? <laughs> Sometimes a little more because wait till you hear this will be entertaining. Uh, there were some tornadoes near Kingfisher, 
Uh, and I just happened to find out that the Kingfisher Oklahoma Class of 1970 reunion was canceled in 2020 during the pandemic. Smart move, you ask, ask me. It was a good decision by Patricia Walter Luthen, whose Facebook cover photo was a long-haired cat. Uh, but she canceled the Class of 70 reunion. Uh, oh my God! Uh, Shoot me now. Uh, tornadoes. This is the new wrestling <laughs> and birth. Tornadoes were also near the fo- the town of Camargo, uh, and according to the "You Know You're from Camargo, Oklahoma" Facebook group, Sandra McManus recently held a neighbor's auction on April 9th that included a beautiful antique organ and some fresh pecans. No more of this, please. And <laughs> another town these tornadoes were near no. was Deer Creek. No, this is real quick one on Deer Creek. Its population is only one thirty. 130 people live in Deer Creek as of 2010, and males had a medium income of $33,000 versus $25,000 for females. As storms moved north-northeast across the state, at about 6.50 p.m. Central, radar detected a new storm developing very close to Oklahoma City moving north, and the storm moved north and produced the initial tornado that touched down about eight miles west of Marland around 9 p.m. Central. Uh, By the way, in Marland... On April 19th, Carol Smith had a chainsaw stolen out of her pickup. Uh, but anyway, back to 1955, it caused some light damage as it moved almost due north into Kay County. The tornado passed to the east and northeast of Tonkawa and destroyed a few homes uh, while the storm also produced baseball-sized hail in Tonkawa. By the way, Tonkawa has a strip club called Little Darlings, and their tagline, this is true, Right now, in face on Facebook, their tagline is "Thousands of beautiful girls and three ugly ones." Oh my God! <laughs> it's a strip club. Uh, the tornado continued north and moved through the east side of Blackwell, causing complete destruction in most of the most of the east side of town. Nineteen people were killed in Blackwell, as well as one person to the northeast of Blackwell. Um, what's going on in Blackwell right now is that Stephen Stoker currently has a recliner he's trying to sell for $15 on Blackwell Oklahoma Yard Sales Facebook group and also in Blackwell uh Saturday May 7th at 10 p.m. Levi Walker is performing live at the Blackwell VFW. Uh so if we're, you're in Blackwell We're not doing Oklahoma, this anymore. I'm not sitting through any more of this. <laughs> you're not? Nope, I'm getting up and leaving. You're gonging it? I'm gonging it. If I have if there's any more I'm getting up. If there's any more Facebook Local. Any more of this, you know what you know what you're doing. But I can finish the tornado story. No, there's no story. Yeah, I got a big one here. All right, as the storm passed the east of Brahmin, which I'll skip what I found out about Brahmin, even though there was a Shih Tzu that Stop was lost. It. it was a good story. Uh, okay, I'll 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 jump to the end Thank of. You. I had a lot of entertaining things. Nothing I, entertaining. I spent a lot of time. If people will like this if. Uh, just reach out to me on Twitter at History for Jerks if you'd like to hear the rest of the Facebook posts I found in different small towns in Oklahoma and um, uh, Kansas because uh, there were some really good ones. Like there's a nice story about Paul Arnoldy finding Sherry Kistler's dog, Stop. things like that. Uh, but we have a quote by one eyewitness in Blackwell had an interesting visual observation of the tornado. Floyd Montgomery lived nine blocks west of the main path of the tornado, and they submitted this account to WeatherWise magazine in June 1956. Mr. Montgomery describes, as he looked to the east from the door of his storm cellar as the tornado moved through Blackwell, he described a fire up near the top of the funnel. It looked like a child's 4th of July pinwheel, he said. The light was so intense, I had to look away. He describes the light as the same color as an electric arc welder, but much brighter, and it seemed to be 
turning to the right like a beacon lamp on a lighthouse. Is wow, that weird? that's bizarre. How is there fire in the top of a tornado? There's so much crazy shit in tornadoes. You would be amazed. Yeah, I was watching that video of that one recently, and I was just... Tornadoes are insane. It makes sense to me. I can't yeah. fathom how it... And it just destroys everything. It's like, yeah. I know they've explained it with weather, but weather, you know, temperatures or whatever, but how have we not direction. figured out how to stop them? Uh, we can predict them. Why can't we, like, stop them or something? They just destroy everything. And then why would you ever live out in these places where they just continually get destroyed? Well, the same place that people live on the beach and the same time the reason people live in California. And, you know, I mean, like, there's... Just keep coming back. Natural disasters are going to happen. and Not everywhere, but there's a lot of places to go where they don't happen. Yeah, but there's always a chance of something. Yeah, there's a chance, but why would you go to a place where it's a 90% chance everything's going to be destroyed by a tornado? I, I don't, or whatever I it don't is. think there's any place in America where it's a 90s. You, you know, don't think? I mean, come on. No, come on. May 30th, 1955, we got our first birthday. Hit the music, Amy. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. Okay, this is an American wrestler born in Gainesville, Texas. Aurelian Smith Jr. was born in Gainesville, on May 30th, 1955, his father, Aurelian Grizzly Smith, was also a wrestler, left his mother when she was 17, which, at which time she had given birth to another child. And this birthday is Jake the Snake Roberts. Okay. He lived with his grandmother until she died in 1966. Listen to how tragic this is. That forced him to move back to live with his father and his new wife. And Roberts had a strained relationship with his pedophilic father because his Stepmom was sexually and physically abusing him uh, during his childhood, which, uh, yeah, just awful. Mm. And his father was doing the same thing to his daughters, his sisters. And he has a half brother and a half sister. They're both wrestlers. Sam Houston and Robin, Rock and Robin, uh, both were wrestlers. But they're all abused by their awful parents. Why? I don't, I mean, I, I don't get it. The abuse thing? Yeah, like, that's your children. Like, even any children, obviously, right? Yeah. But your own, you, like, you had the children, and you're going to abuse them? It's a mental illness, I think, is the only thing I can think of. I There's got to be something mentally ill with you. Or, you know, I think they always say most abusers were abused themselves, and then it's like a, I think just they have a fucked up view of what's, how the world works or something. I don't know. They're weird. Like, regular abuse. I kind of understand. I mean, <laughs> like, I'm not like trying just to say, hitting somebody. You know, because yeah. we like you lose if, your temper. If you're and you a parent, hit yeah. you you know, like you, there, like you had to walk away different times, and knowing that you about ready to hit somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, sexual abuse. Well, and our parents did hit us. Right. I mean, we were right. They hit us. But sexual abuse of your own child. But yeah, they. You never get so mad you want to bang somebody. Ew! 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 Yeah. It's just. I don't know. It's a me- it's a it's got to be mental illness. It's the only thing that can make sense. It's like something that's just wrong with your brain. Gross. Anyway, well, that brings us to June. We've got through May, and that was gross and awful. But in on June first of nineteen fifty five, you're going to be excited about this one, Aim. Oh, okay. It was the debut of the film The Seven Year Itch, which was a debut oh, yeah. of uh, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, and her character is never introduced or called by name, and it's simply credited as the girl. Yeah. Yeah, it was premiered in New York City on June 1st. That's a good one. That's a funny movie. Yeah, you made me watch it, and I 
don't think I hated it. No, it was funny. You thought it was funny. I don't know if I thought it was funny. Maybe I did. I think you did. Maybe I did. Uh, and then we got June 7th. The first president to appear on color TV is Dwight D. Eisenhower on June 7th. Okay. And then June 11th, 1955. I don't know if you know heard about this, but Switzerland had, had to ban nearly all forms of motor racing after this tragic 1955 Le Mans disaster. Or fragments of- Like a... Le Mans, like birth breathing? Not Le Mans. Oh. Le Mans, which is a race car. Oh. Where fragments of a crashed car flew into the stands, killing 83 spectators and injuring 120. The most deadly accident in motorsport history. The driver who caused the accident, Mike Hawthorne, with the Jaguar team, went on to win the race because they what? didn't stop the race. Oh, my God. All those people died. Oh, my God. And they kept going. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, insane. It's insane. So it's a 24-hour race, the 24 hours of Le Mans motor race. It's Circuit de la Sarte in Le Mans, So it's Sarte, not just France. around a racetrack. It's like... It is. Oh, it is? But like for 24 hours, I think. And it was a <laughs> shitty a shitty track. And they actually blamed the track as part of the reason. Uh, but yeah, large pieces of debris flew into the crowd, killing 83 spect- spectators. And it killed French driver Pierre Levey and injuring nearly 180 more. Um, it actually made... Mercedes-Benz retired from motor racing until 1989. The crash started when Jaguar driver Mike Hawthorne pulled to the right side of a track in front of Austin Healey, uh, of an Austin Healey driver, Lance Macklin, and started braking for his pit stop. Macklin swerved out from behind the slowing Jaguar into the path of LeVay, who was pulling on the left in his much faster Mercedes-Benz 300 SLR. And then LeVay rear-ended Macklin at high speed, overriding Macklin's car and launching his own car through the air. Yeah. LeVay's car skipped over a protective earthen berm, I guess like it's like a barrier, yeah. at 125 miles per hour and made at least two impacts within the spectator area, the last of which caused the car to disintegrate, throwing him out of the track where he was instantly killed. That's got a tickle. Yeah, and the large pieces of debris, including the engine block, the radiator, the front suspension, and the hood went flying into the packed spectator area in front of the grandstand, killing all those people. Uh, the rear of his car landed on the berm and exploded into flames. Had to be a pretty badass explosion. Yeah. But tragedy. Uh, like I said, there was a lot of debate over the blame for it, but uh, they didn't blame the drivers. They blamed the 30-year-old track, which hadn't been designed for cars as fast as those involved in this crash. Uh-huh. But here's the worst part. LeVay's lifeless body... Mm-hmm. severely burned, lay there in full view on the pavement until they can haul down a banner to put down a banner to cover it. Oh, my God. So, and they just kept going with the race. Uh, LeVay's wife was inconsolable, oh. as as you'd think, and and they stayed with so they stayed her and tried, with her and tried to comfort her oh as God. her husband's laying there while they're continuing the race. Despite expectations for the race to be red flagged and stopped entirely, race officials led by race director Charles Farrow kept the race running. In the days after the disaster, several explanations were offered by Faro for this course of action. They included that if the huge crowd of spectators had tried to leave en masse, they would have choked the main roads around, uh, severely impeding That's access true. for medical and emergency crews trying to save the injured. That is a good point. Yeah, I guess. But you, you, 
you can just tell everybody they got to stay there or not keep racing. Uh, he said they also said that firms participating in the race could have sued the race organizi- organizers for huge sums of money if they canceled. Um, and saying that the law of sport dictates the race shall go on. Um, and he also didn't think he had the authority to stop it. Uh, and that prefect Pierre Troy, uh, Troy, 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 <laughs> how do you say T R O U I L L E? I know the L L should be a T R O U what? I L L E. Troy, Troy, I don't understand I have no French. Idea. He was the only individual powered to cancel it, and he wasn't there or something. So, okay. anyway, that was awful, a terrible thing that happened. Yeah. And then that brings us to June 15th with my, the, my beautiful blushing bride <laughs> has uh, okay something so I, pleasant. I did this old school. It's, I wrote it down in a notebook, and it's basically I'm going to I'm going to retell the story. Of this okay. episode of A Crime to Remember that I watched. So anyway. <laughs> that's what this is about. It's a show called A, a Crime to Remember on Apple TV or on something? On Investigation Discovery. Oh, Investigation Discovery. That's a channel that we get. I had the ID uh-huh. channel, yeah. Um, so this is the murder of Judge Curtis Chillingworth. Ooh. And his Judge wife, Marjorie. Curtis Chillingworth. So West Palm Beach, Florida, 1955. Ooh. He was never late. Just Judge Curtis Chillingworth was never late. He was never a very late? punctual man. So it sounds like a exaggeration. He's never late. No, he was very punctual. It was very important to him. But he didn't show up this morning uh-huh. on June fifteenth. Oh, June fifteenth. He didn't show up the same day that the Eisenhower administration staged the first annual Operation Alert Opal exercise in an attempt to assess the USA's prep for a nuclear attack. Yes. Oh. Uh, so same day. he wasn't in court that morning, and that was odd. So his secretary called the police. Yeah, he's never late. Something's wrong. They were supposed to. So he and his wife, you know, everybody thinks, well, they must be at home in yeah. their bungalow. So just fell asleep. Just south of West Palm. Yeah, because if they're in a bung, if they live in a bungalow and they're late, they got to be at the bungalow. Right. So the police, excuse me, the police arrived I to accept your apology. unmade beds, clothes strewn about, and Judge Chillingworth's wallet and Miss Chillingworth's purse were there ah. plus all their ids that's weird no indication they had gone for a swim or a walk or anything like that the breakfast table was set like it was they hadn't eaten breakfast yet huh. no one had heard from them since there was a dinner party the night before that they were at huh. and that was at mr and mrs james owen's house okay and they were there till about 10 or 10 30 the lead suspect i imagine well, no, they were at Owens's? the. It was a party. They yeah. were there at the party. Then they left. Well, at this point in the story, they're my lead suspect because they're the only other people you've mentioned. Yes, but they were at a party with them, and then they left, and then the party continued. So. Oh, the party continued. It didn't end. Right. It wasn't ended. They weren't the last guests. So they came home from the party. Okay. They set the breakfast dishes out for the next morning. Oh. Is what they assume. It must Planning have ahead, yeah. So the judge and Mrs. Chillingworth had known each other since they were children and got married right after the war. Okay. They were very close. Kind of weird. Judge yeah. Chillingworth was one of only three judges in this area of West Palm Beach. We only got three judges in West Palm Beach. And he was considered local royalty. Oh. He was the youngest to be appointed to a circuit bench. Oh, wow. He ge- and he genuinely loved the law, it, okay. it was said. One of those kind of guys. So they're, so back to the scene. Their bedclothes are missing. Okay. 
Their so bed clothes. Whatever rest. happened occurred after they went to bed. Yeah, so they must have got up and had to leave suddenly in a rush. Yeah. Huh. So as they survey the area, deputies find one of the floodlights is broken outside. Hmm. They find blood. Oh. And an empty spool of adhesive tape outside. Okay. So they walk towards the beach, and they find more blood at the beach. Mm. And they find marks in the sand that indicate a small boat had come ashore. Uh Uh-oh. So the Palm Beach Air Force Base sends out a helicopter, plus Coast Guard started searching. Okay. They had blood samples, so they took the blood samples of the blood that was left. But back then there wasn't any yeah, DNA. Yeah, nothing to do. They, with they could it. only tell the blood type matched Mrs. Chillingworth. Well, we took blood samples just in case someday DNA's invented. Something like that. So to after days of searching, nothing comes up. They just knew they had been taken from the house, probably by boat, is yeah. what they were thinking. And they're probably thinking too that he's a judge, right? So there's a lot of suspects that he may have well, sentenced and, or whatever, right? So yes. So it had been at this time over a week since they had gone missing. Okay. The the there was a large reward being offered and the news was everywhere too, the publicity yeah. of it all. So just prior to their disappearance, there was another disappearance of a couple, a plumber and his wife. Oh, no. The plumber was a witness in an upcoming trial of oh. reputed mob boss Albert Anastasia. Uh oh. Once the mob's involved, man. So gets rough. You don't want to mess with it. Don't want to be involved. I don't want to even talk about this. So there's just enough similarity between the two crimes that okay. it made the police take notice. Okay. Both could have been related okay. to each other somehow. What what were the similarities? Well, I'm gonna tell you. Oh. Who might have and so they start thinking, who might want the judge dead? Yeah. Well, he sent people to jail all the time. So yes, you gotta out who. like you were saying, there yeah. could be any reason. So Judge Chillingworth was tough. He held everyone to high standards. Okay. The entire criminal world became suspect. There was one family, actually two brothers, okay. who um, had a tangled history with the judge. Charles Nelson. Riley? What? No, just Charles oh. Nelson. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Charles Nelson, who the judge had sentenced to jail, had a brother named Trapper Nelson. Who Trapper li- Nelson? Yeah, and he lived in the woods cool. in North Palm Beach. Trapper oh Nelson was an off-grid person. Oh, who God. had uh, An off-grid person? Yeah. He had, <laughs> this guy did it. He had dealings with the judge in the past. Oh, boy. He had several land disputes with the judge. And so then when Charles Nelson was sentenced, he said, I'm going to kill you. You're going to pay for this to the judge. And it took him this long to figure out who the suspect might be? He Maybe had, it's the guy who threatened to kill the judge. Well, and he had just gotten out of prison. Oh, okay. Oh, boy, yeah. And the judge and his wife disappeared. Well, put two and two together, bro. So when the police looked into it, though, they found out that Trapper and the judge had actually become friends. What? After he threatened to kill him? No, that was not. That was Charles that threatened to kill him. Charles threatened to kill him, but But Trapper. But he had a land dispute with Trapper. But then they had become friends after this dispute. Wait. Charles and Trapper? Yes. Yes. Charles threatened to kill Trapper. No. Trapper threatened to kill Charles. Charles threatened to kill the judge. Charles threatened to kill the judge. Trapper and the judge had a land yes, dispute. Yes, correct. They solved that, and Trapper and the judge became friends. Yes. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying, okay, I got and it. And Trapper had then had an alibi for Charles, which eliminated him. So. Oh, so uh, if I hope I'm not the only person that's listening to the story and, and picturing Charles Nelson Riley and Trapper John. 
MD. MD. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what you yeah. automatically picture. I think. So weeks turn into months, turn into years. No success. No. Finally, they declare them legally dead. The judge... Oh, but they didn't find them ever? No. And judges don't just disappear, so it freaked everybody out. Yeah. And so after two years, there's still people in the community who want to know what happened. Well, and there's presumably people in the community who did this. Well, and then... With no consequences. Then they find... And they could do it again. ...a body in okay. the canal west of West Palm Beach. I think it's pronounced canal. <laughs> but this was not the judge, however. Okay. Was it the plumber? But it was this guy named... you. Eugene, no, Eugene Harvey from Jacksonville, Florida. Eugene Harvey from Jacksonville, Florida. Let's see how he fits but in. But Eugene Harvey was the first step down a path to the truth about the chilling words. Oh, so finding this guy dun, dun, helped. Eugene Harvey, rest in peace. I hope. And then there was a commercial is. about tampons. No. <laughs> on the right, show, yeah. On the show. So, yeah. Okay, so Eugene's wife says that he was going to a business meeting and was nervous about it. Lou Jean was? Yeah. I like the name Lou Jean. You don't ever hear anybody named Lou Jean anymore. That's true. The wife was suspicious, so she had written down the license plate of the car he had stepped into. Oh, she so, thought he was cheating? No, they. No, she just, because he, he was n real nervous about oh, it. Oh, because he was into weird. Yeah. yeah, he's into something. So investigators run the plate, and it comes back to Floyd Lucky Holzapfel. Uh, I'm sure that's how you say it. A <laughs> Floyd Lucky Holzlotful? We're going to call him Lucky. Okay. Um, This Lucky. was a career criminal and a thug. Okay. That's, that's who the plate. That's whose plate ran. Yeah. yeah. So he got into a, he must have been mixed up into something. So then there was this guy named Bobby Lincoln who was a partner to Floyd Lucky Holzlotful. Zotful. Okay. So. <laughs> Mr. Bargain Barson. <laughs> so Lucky's friend. Uh-huh. What's his name? Bobby Lincoln. Bobby Lincoln is Lucky's bud. Yeah. And he was his liaison to the black neighborhoods. He was black man. And he, so he would. He, he was, was black man. He, he was a black he man. He was a black man. Yes. He was uh, his liaison to the black neighborhoods. Okay. To the crime they to, ran this gambling, these gambling games. Yeah. We had talked about one a few back that yeah. there was these gambling things and and they must have held got into that a lot they must they were all, and they always seemed like we're just ahead of the police like yeah. they somebody was tipping them off okay. every time there was a raid they yeah. had gotten a tip off so they knew they had somebody on the inside so the police wanted to put their own man on the inside okay. so they wired this man named jim yinzer who knew enough about lucky's business to have a guilty conscience jim and an yinzer? urge to unburden himself Okay. Jim Yenzer. Jim Yenzer. Okay. So detectives questioned Yenzer, who told them that Floyd had bragged about the, the Chillingworth murder, saying, there's a hole in the ocean no one's found the bottom of yet. Oh. Yeah. So n now detectives focus on Lucky, because he's, he said that. So by this time, it had been five years. Police convinced a former associate, Jim Yenzer, we already talked about him, to lure Lucky to a hotel room. So he's going to, they're going to bug the hotel room. They're going to be. Sorry, they're going to bug the hotel room. They're going to okay. be right next door. Yeah. And they're going to listen to these two dudes get just get hammered. Yeah, and try to get them to say it. Yeah. All right. Nervous. He's wearing a wire with a mafia guy. Can you imagine? No, it's he's not wearing a wire. It's the room is bugged. Oh, the room. The whole room is bugged. Yeah. So he's not bugged. So he's not bugged. But still, if he finds the wires, I know. yeah. That's even. That's almost even more nervous causing because he could just. So there. Find it. So they're in there. Authorities are listening next door. And this sp over the span of three days, they recorded 30 reels of tape. Oh, my gosh. 
So then, finally, Lucky starts talking about a judge. But it wasn't Judge Chillingworth. Oh. It was Judge Peel, who was a Palm Beach native and a World War II veteran. He was a smooth-talking ladies' man. He handled search warrants and minor traffic violations. But he... <laughs> But he had all this money, like he had all these flashy cars and stuff. And that so, judge did. Y- yeah. Oh. So, but he he was like this kind of peon kind of judge. Oh. So it it didn't match. Okay. So one of his jobs was that he would grant warrants, and then he and then he would call ahead and warn the people. Yeah. That the police were on the way. Okay. And those people paid Judge Peel for those warnings. Oh, okay. That was his scam. So the judge was the one on that. Yeah. So one of the phone calls was to Bobby Lincoln, the black man who was into rocketeering along with Lucky and Peel. Okay. Um, so Lucky is still in the hotel room with Yenzer, right? Yeah. And he gets pretty drunk and he starts to bring up Judge Chillingworth. Okay. Pretty soon... They have the whole story. Oh, and we okay. What is the story? So days before their disappearance, Judge Peel told Lucky and Lincoln that Judge Chillingworth was going to ruin their business and needed to be killed. Oh, they didn't know Chillingworth at all. So yeah. Peel drove them over and pointed him out, it's like he was outside yeah. his house. Yeah, pointed, pointed out who he, out was. who he was. So Lucky brought a skiff and a second anchor, and they passed a bottle of whiskey between them. And set out in the ocean to where they knew Chillingworth would be. Yeah. So they snuck up to the beach and saw the wife was with them. And she wasn't supposed to be there. Uh-huh. So that kind of put a kink in their plans, I guess. Sorry. Hold on. Got to turn the page. They were fishing? Who? No, they lived on the beach. They lived on the beach. So yeah. it was, oh, the, the part of the beach where they would be. I always thought that was out in the water. Okay. No, they, they went up to the beach. And they, the beach, that, right. that's where they saw the the marks on the sand that's where the police had seen there was a boat so they waited until they went to bed then lucky pounded on the door while lincoln hid in the bushes judge chillingworth came to the door lucky said his boat his boat had broken down and he wanted to use his phone Mm. but he didn't do a very good job with his story and the judge wasn't buying it yeah so he finally just pulled out a gun and told the judge it was a stick-up so Bobby Lincoln then smashed the porch lights so no one could see. Okay. And they wrapped both their hands with adhesive tape where empty spools, that's where the empty spools ended up, you know, when they found that yeah. in the yard. And um, Mrs. Chillingworth called out when they were at the beach, and so then Lucky hit her with his revolver, and that's what caused the blood spatter. Uh. So they get him into the skiff and drive off. They were out in the open ocean for almost an hour when they stopped weighing them down with weights. Mm. The judge and his wife, they said, I love you, and then they threw him in the water. And then the judge did manage to come up, and so they ended up beating him with the butt of the gun. Jeez. Yeah, and then he sunk, sank back down. Girl, awful. What a horrible way to die. I know it. For a guy who's just trying to dole out justice. Peel had managed to be watching the uh, $64,000 question game show so that he would have an alibi. I don't know why that would be an alibi, but he that's what he said. Well, if you go back and watch a TV, you can like quote the TV yeah, show, and then true. it sounds like you're there the whole time or something. So they call the judge, and they say the motor is fixed, and he knows his troubles with Judge Chillingworth are over. Oh, my God. But after everything, it was discovered that Peel had been reprimanded by Judge Chillingworth several times for shoddy law practice. He had reprimanded him the first time in 1953, two years before his disappearance. Two years later, Peel's handling of a divorce for a woman, and he, and 
he appears to be too lazy to file the paperwork. So she files a complaint because she had remarried. And then she found out she was a bigamist because oh, her divorce had never gone through. Oh, boy. So Peel was about to appear before Judge Chillingworth for his second breach of ethics. Mm. Judge Chillingworth could disbar Judge Peel, which would also um, end his money-making operation. Okay. So, yeah, he had a motive there. Yep. So the date of the hearing was the day Judge Chillingworth disappeared. Mm. So Lucky is arrested. He's charged with, with Lincoln and Peel for the murders. Yeah. The day before the disappearance, the judge had drafted his letter of resignation. He felt it was time to start a new period in his life to spend more time with his wife. Isn't that sad? That is very so sad. I was murdered. Poor guy. And that's the story. <sighs> that's the story, Larry. Well, that's a real doubter, so I'll try to pick it up by finishing up June real fast. Hey, there wasn't any rape that we know of. We don't know that any rapes happened. That there we know might have of. Been, there There's might have nobody. been people being raped during all that in the nobody. background somewhere, but nobody, nobody got raped. They never found their bodies, though. Never, no, fa- never found their bodies, huh? Nope. Well, then June 22nd, to wipe the palette clean, Walt Disney's animated film Lady and the Tramp was released. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, it's a good love story, and people love dogs. It and then goes. one more birthday. We've got a June birthday. Hit it, Matt Truman Ego Trip, because this is going to be one that Amy loves. <laughs> Yes, Glenn Allen Anzalone, the third of four sons, was born in Lodi, New Jersey. His father was a television repairman and a United States Marine Corps veteran of World War II, uh, and his mother worked at a record store. He began listening to heavy music at an early age and described Black Sabbath or Ramones' Blue Cheer on the Doors as being among his early musical influences. Get, got any idea who no. Glenn Allen Anzalone is? At age 10, he began to use drugs and alcohol, leading him into frequent fights and trouble with the law. He stopped using drugs at age 15. While growing up, he began reading the works of authors, including Charles Baudelaire and Edgar Allan Poe. Developed, no idea. Just tell me. He, well, he started. He liked horror. Glenn Danzig. Yes, yeah. graduated from Lodi High School in 1973. Royal blue and orange are the team colors, home of the Rams. Uh, famous alumni include stamp collector Robert Zellner. <laughs> Stop. Anyway, Glenn Danzig. You know who Danzig is, right? Yeah, from the Misfits. I've never been a big fan. I thought you loved Danzig. No. Oh, that's sure. Steve Bishop I'm thinking of, the yeah. gruff, from the Gruff and Loud show. You're um, confused in your old age. Yeah, I, am, I get you and um, my friend. My best bud. You always can get us confused. Confused. All the time. You guys look the same. Especially uh, in the bedroom. In the bedroom. I always say, oh, yeah, gruff. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, did you know that Danzig f- formed an adult oriented comic book company called Verotic in the mid 90s? I didn't know that. And then a couple other things. June 27th, in 1955, the first automobile seatbelt legislation was enacted in Illinois. Good for them. The first time somebody said you have to wear a seatbelt. Before that, they thought... They thought it was infringing on my rights. (laughs) You're infringing on my rights! Yep. What is wrong with people? They are nuts. Yes, they Um, are. I can't figure out what's going on. And the last thing I have for June 30th, 1955. The Johnny Carson Show. Yes, Sorry. CBS TV debuts the Johnny Carson Show. Johnny Carson. Oh. 
Thank you very much and good evening. I'm Johnny Carson. Now, the reason I say that each week is because my kids love to stay up and watch television. So every Thursday night, my wife turns on the set. I come out, I say, hello, I'm Johnny Carson. My kids say, oh, it's only daddy. Let's go to bed. <laughs> night, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny Carson. Look how young. He looks yeah. like a baby. Yeah, he does. Anyway, yep. Johnny Carson. Everybody liked him. We, we never found out anything terrible about him. I mean, he married a bunch of women, but it, yeah, we never know. heard about him like hitting anybody or anything or being bad, but hopefully he wasn't. I'm sure he was at some point. But yeah. It seems like everybody was. Johnny Carson debuted in 1955, his own show. Um, he had been on, I think he'd guest host some other things and yeah. before that. But anyway, that's May and June of 1955. We, we, we have we, Johnny Carson we. starting. We got Glenn Danzig born. We've got a horrible, awful crash. We've got a sad murder. We've got Disney movies out. We've got tornadoes destroying everything. We've got Jake the Snake Roberts being born. Yep. And now it's bedtime for Bonzo. And now it's time, if you're listening to this, go to bed. Wherever you are right now, <laughs> you're in this episode, it's time to go to bed. So if you're driving, pull over to the side of the road and take a nap. If you're at work, just go clock under, out. Go under your desk. Clock out for the day or, yeah, go under the desk and tell your boss, sorry. Joe and Amy said it's bedtime, so fuck you, boss. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, it is time to get out of here. Chuck. Let Dale through. Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time. Buy their music. <laughs> <laughs>